0: Well, hey guys, it is great to be with you this evening. I see a lot of students. So y'all just got back from Camp Kalakwa, right? First timers. Anyone first time Camp Calacqua? Wow. Guys, that is awesome. I'm so glad that you guys had a fantastic time. I uh, am originally from Riverview, Florida. I grew up here and I had the blessing of going to Bell Shoals Baptist Church back when I was really young. Um, And then right when I was kind of entering into sixth grade, that's when our family decided to go ahead and transition over to Fishhawk Fellowship. And so I've had the amazing blessing of being able to go through the entire student ministry from sixth to twelfth grade. And although I didn't realize it when I was in the student ministry... Man, being able to look back and seeing the vision that Fishhawk has for, for the discipleship of students is so, so encouraging. And so parents, thank you so much for trusting your kids in, uh, in the student ministry because it, it, personally it had such such a huge effect on my life. And I know that your kids are, are really being discipled really well here at Fishhawk Fellowship. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, so I, have a, I could talk all day about how great the student ministry is. Um, But there were a few things that scarred me when I was in the student ministry. Uh, The first thing, and and they're not bad things, it's just I'm scarred for life. Uh, In sixth grade, in sixth grade, we would play this game. And now I'm gonna leave the person nameless for who created this game. But what Mr. Johnny would do is what he would do is he would would give us all, he would give all of the sixth graders, middle schoolers, 9 a.m. Sunday morning, a can of soda. That's already a bad idea. Uh, Parents know that probably all too well. So he would pass out this this can of soda, and he would have us sit in this circle. And uh, it gets so much worse. Um, What he would do is he would ask us to take off our shoes, and then he would ask us to take off one of our socks. We got to choose. And what we would do is we would take this sock, and we would just kind of like put it like a coffee filter right over the can of soda, Parents, I already see you guys squirming. It's so nasty, isn't it? Um, But don't worry, it gets way worse. What he would then ask us to do is just pass the soda to the person on our left. First person to chug the soda would win. We won nothing, but we would win. Uh, And so I was personally scarred. That has nothing to do with what we're gonna talk about here this evening. I just thought the parents should know uh, what what you're allowing your students to be a part of here at Fish Shocks Student Ministry. I don't know about, it. I think this is a guy thing, but personally, I think I am the funniest person in the world. Like I'm by far the funniest person in this room, but I, I really think I am the funniest person in the world. And I'm sure a lot of dads feel that way too, with all the dad jokes and you know, all that kind of stuff, but I really do. And so like, I'll be in the middle of Starbucks and I'll just think of something it's so random. I'll just think of something and start laughing out loud And I have everyone in Starbucks just looking at me, like who is that guy laughing in the middle of a Starbucks with nothing going on? So I'm that guy. And as I was prepping for for today and and studying the scriptures, I I thought it would be really funny if I just went back to what I did a year and a half ago and word for word taught the same sermon. You see, last year in January, I had the awesome opportunity to be in the other building across the way and, and bring the word. And I thought that was so funny, like for whatever reason. So I told my friends, and my family, the idea, and I got the same reaction that I'm getting from you guys right now, silence. It wasn't funny, but for whatever reason, I thought it was hilarious. Um, So I kind of discarded that idea and I started studying the scriptures and and seeing just where the Lord was going to bring me today. And just ironically, it, it just so happened that a story that I shared with you guys last time happens just to fit so perfectly into this text. And if you, so if you guys are are aware of this, it's called a passion conference. It's a big college conference, about 10,000 students go to this. And I had the opportunity to go a few years ago and a lot of the students will be familiar with this, but these camps and conferences tend to have like a flow. The night one will kind of be like introductory vision for the week kind of stuff, get a short bio of the speaker. But then by like night five, everyone's on the ground crying because just like the Holy Spirit's doing insane things. And I'm sure a lot of the students that went to camp experienced that same thing, right? Yeah, I'm getting nods. (laughs) Um, And passion was no different. Man, the night one sermon was fantastic, but then by, by the last night when Louis Giglio got up on stage and taught the gospel and shared it with us and shared his heart with us, I... I was just so broken, like I was just so convicted and like the Lord was just doing so much in my heart and in 10,000 college students' hearts around me. And as the band came up and did like a closing worship song as what will normally happen at conferences like that, I heard this noise behind me. And at first it started out really quiet, but then as time went on, it got louder and louder and I just couldn't help but turn around to see what this noise was. And it was this girl, and she was on her hands and on her knees on this dirty stadium floor, snot coming out of her mouth, tear, or snot coming out of her nose, tears coming out of her eyes. And man, this girl, like she was just sobbing, uncontrollable sobbing. And she looked up just momentarily, like just for an instant, we may have caught eyes for a millisecond. And man, I knew exactly what she was experiencing for the first time in her life, she understood the weight and the consequence of her sin. She understood that there was a chasm between her and God, and there was nothing she could do to cross that chasm. There is no tradition she could follow. There was no good works she could do. There is no area in the church that she could serve to cross that chasm. And she understood that. And man, when when we hear that, like that's kind of terrifying. Like when there's nothing that we can do to get to God, like that should almost tear, like that should petrify us. But man, her cry wasn't wasn't a cry of despair or of sadness, but it was a cry of joy, a cry of love, because her realization didn't stop there. She understood that although she couldn't cross that chasm, Jesus had crossed that chasm for her. And he didn't just cross that chasm for her. He picked her up on that other side and carried her back to the arms of the father. And she was understanding this for the first time. She, for the first time, had understood what salvation and Jesus was like. And man, the joy that was on her face was overwhelming. And the question that I want to start with today is when was that moment when Jesus crossed that chasm for you picked you up and carried you to the arms of the Father? When was that moment that you fully understood the joy in God's salvation that he offers us? And as we start with that question in mind, I want us to to look at a biblical character whose name is David. And when we think of David, we kind of think of this, King, you know, majestic lion slayer, you know, giant killer. Like we think of this big mighty church or biblical hero. And we look up to him and, and we we model things after him and, and we try to live like him. And he's a man after God's own heart. And it's good to pursue those things. But what we so often fail to realize is that David was a man just like us. He struggled with temptations and sins the same way that we do. And so we're going to take a look today at Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, we get this picture. We get this picture of David after he had sinned probably far beyond what he could have imagined possible. You see, back in 2 Samuel, what David had done was he was in a place that he wasn't supposed to be. He was looking at things that he wasn't supposed to be looking at. And then temptation had overcome him and he decided to take this girl who had a husband and get her pregnant. And then what he did from there is he tried to cover up his sin. And then when he realized he couldn't cover it up, he sent her husband to the battlefield to be killed. This man who we look up to as a a man after God's own heart had just committed adultery, had just lied and had just murdered. And so in, in Psalm 51, what we get is a picture. We get a picture of what David's heart was after his sin had been exposed. And so we're gonna go ahead and read the whole chapter of Psalm 51. So I believe it will be on the screen, but if not, uh, turn on your Bibles and take a look with me. Starting in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be made clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow." Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." You see that passage, and we could spend the next 10 hours going through each verse and the depth that each verse contains, but this passage is is really, it's just had such a large, huge impact on me. Mainly because I sin a lot. Like when I lie and cheat and steal, like I always seem to find myself back in this passage. And although we won't have time to look at each verse, I want us to take a deeper look at two of these verses that we find in here. And they are verses 12 and 13. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And so since I am Baptist, we're gonna be taking three truths out of this verse. And I think three is actually a really good number to pull from this verse. so I would really encourage all of you to take out your pens and your pencils and get ready to write these down. If you're a hipster and you have your iPad and your Apple pencil, go ahead and take that out. Or if you're that person in the room that's like, I don't need to write them down. I'm gonna just store them in the back of my head and I'll pull them out when I need them later. I am you and you won't remember them. So, because I won't remember them, I forget, I forget the points on the car ride home. So please write these down because these are so, so important for the life of a believer. So, our first point today is that joy is given and sustained by God. And I think it's really easy for us to agree with that statement. But for me, a long time, I didn't really understand what joy was. Maybe I had experienced it a few times, but like, what is joy? And for us to understand the truth in that statement, man, we have to have a good idea of what joy is. And so for us to get this fundamental idea of what joy is, let's start with what joy is not. Because there's a lot, there can be a lot of confusion in this. Joy is not found in circumstances. Joy is not circumstantial. And the second one is that joy is not in emotion. And I think both of these are really, really important and play well together. If we open to Galatians five, which you don't have to do, I'll read it for you. But in Galatians five, we see the fruit of the spirit. I'm sure a lot of you guys know the song, the fruit of the spirit's not a coconut, anyone? No, okay, great, fantastic, I'm the only one. But what the the passage said is the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what's interesting about what the Bible says about these things is these things don't come and go due to our circumstances or or they don't come and go when God just feels like giving them to us or taking them away. In fact, what we see is that these are things that God invites a believer into when he has received the good news of Jesus Christ. And so these are things that should define and dictate how believers live. They shouldn't be things that we experience every once in a while. Our joy is only stifled by sin. You see, although circumstances have no power over our joy in the Lord, our sinful reaction to those circumstances can stifle our joy in the Lord. You see, when we get caught up in bills, our deadlines, our students with with papers that you have to do and and tests that you have, when, when those circumstances begin to define your life and take the place of these fruit of the Spirit, then we enter into sin territory. Then we may not experience God's joy in its fullness because we've replaced what God has given us with our momentary circumstances. And so I think we really have to have this idea of what joy is not. But we also need to know what joy is. And it would be really easy for me to like pop up a quick definition or something from a Bible website, but sometimes definitions just don't don't do justice to to what joy actually is. Sometimes it's just difficult to define. And so the easiest way for us to understand what joy is, is to look at scripture and see where where people were able to find joy in the midst of circumstances that seemed like joy was impossible to find. You see, Paul, when he was in prison, when he was sitting in his own filth, being mocked by guards, being yelled at, being spit on, being tortured in jail, Paul was still, for whatever reason, able to worship because his circumstances didn't define his relationship in Christ. Because what was happening to him externally, Paul would not let get to the core of him and his worship and his praise and his rest in Christ. And man, we see examples of this all over scripture. Go to the Old Testament, look at Job. Literally everything had been stripped away from Job, except for the wife that wanted Job to kill himself. But yet Job was still able to fall flat on his face and worship God. He didn't allow his circumstances to dictate his relationship with God. I mean, we could point to the scripture and we could talk about different people all day, but there's one specific example that I want to share with you. And hopefully it's an example that none of you have heard of because because I never heard of it before a few weeks ago. And it's a story of an early church martyr whose name was Felicitas or in English translated as Felicity. She was a slave girl who had been raised and had been fortunate enough to been raised in a Christian home. The people who she served were Christians and loved her so well. She was raised as an early Christian right after the epistles had been written and Jesus had ascended. She was, she was right in the midst of it. But that also means she was right in the midst of persecution. You see, she had just given birth to five sons and she had just gotten pregnant with another son. And, and that's about the time when the Roman government had, had caught wind that there are Christians in the community. And according to, to Roman law at the time, if they had been made aware of Christians in the community, they would need to be taken and asked to recant their faith. And if they didn't recant their faith, they would be murdered. They would be executed. And so the Roman government went to this family's house, rounded up the family and her friends, including Felicitas, and took them into this room. And the Roman government was like, hey, we're gonna give you one opportunity to recant your faith. And all of them across the board said no. And so they were taken to a jail in their dungeon and they were set an execution date. And the interesting thing about Roman law at this time was that if someone was pregnant, they couldn't be executed. They would have to wait until the baby was born and then she could be taken and executed. Well, Felicitas was pregnant at this time and she was, she just that didn't sit right with her. She wanted to be martyred with her friends and her family, her community and with her church, because that's the, those are the people that she grew up with. Those were the people that Christ called her into to love and to serve. And she just didn't feel right about dying apart from them or being the only one living after them. And so they went to the Lord and her family, asked for a divine intervention. They didn't ask to be released from their their eventual death. In fact, they just asked the Lord to bring her baby sooner. And so four months later, Felicitas gave birth to a healthy baby. And we know this story because that baby actually went on to be one of the most effective missionaries in early Africa Christianity. And so after she had given birth to this baby and their ex- execution date came, came around, they were dragged out into the middle of this courtyard where bulls and lions, and then eventual Roman guards would come to murder them. And they were being dragged out onto this huge arena. And as, as Felicitas was being dragged out uh, into this area, she began to put her hair up into this fancy braid. And now it's really interesting to notice this because the way that women would wear their hair in the first, second, and third century was really important and extremely symbolic. You see, when women would put their hair up, it would would signify life, togetherness, joy. It would be things that that people would do at weddings and at parties. This was something, she was making a symbolic statement that her joy, that she was experiencing complete joy in this moment, moments before her death. And so they were thrown out into this arena and the bulls and lions were released. And one by one, her friends and family were murdered. And then eventually a bull had come and hit her in the head and she began bleeding out. And as she was laying on the ground moments from her death, a Roman guard walked up to her to finish the job. And when she hit the ground, her hair had gone from this ornate braid something that signified life and joy and togetherness and had fallen and was on the ground, covered in mud and dirt and blood. And when women would wear their hair down, it would be a time of mourning, despair, death. It'd be something that, that people would do at funerals. And moments before the Roman guard went to finish her, she asked him to wait. And and as the Roman guard hesitated, she took her hair that was covered in mud and in dirt and in blood, and she began to put it back on top of her head. And as she was doing that, she looked at the Roman guard and said, "'My joy is in the Lord, and you can't take that from me.'" You see, joy is given and sustained by God, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so back to Psalm 51. Like we got to talk about David a little bit. You see, David's, David's joy had been stifled when he had committed this sin and neglected to repent from it. That's why he's asking God to restore this joy. And you see, I think that truth is the same about us. Man, when we are struggling to find joy in the Lord, maybe it's because there is some unrepentant sin foundationally in our heart that maybe we're not even aware of that needs to be dealt with. Because our sin, the same way that David's sin stifled his joy in the Lord, our sin stifles our joy in the Lord. So the second point that we have for you today is that Christian obedience must be willing. Read verse 12 with me again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And that last part right there is also commonly translated as make me willing to obey you. You see, David understood that it was not a part of his nature to willingly obey God. It was just a sinful nature takes that desire away from us. We do not desire to obey God naturally. And so David understood that for him to obey God fully, he had to have this joy in his salvation And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe that's where a lot of the people in this room are. Maybe for whatever reason you're working so hard, you're serving so much, you're trying to follow certain traditions, and for whatever reason you think that will get you to God, and so we keep pushing in, expecting God to do something, expecting Him to give us His joy, and we're trying to work for it, and we just can't seem to get it. I mean, that's because we're starting from the opposite end. I think moms, you'll, you'll, you'll kind of understand this, this reference. I, it's, it's an illustration that I that thought of and I hope you guys will like it. Um, say it's mom's birthday and mom for her birthday wants a nice card from her kids. And so what mom does is she goes to Hallmark or whatever, wherever she buys her cards and she gets the biggest card she can find. And the card, I mean, you open it up, and it's the pink and green bunny, and they argue at each other. You guys know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, great. Um, and you have a big pop-up, and, you know, it makes sounds, and it sings songs, and she gets the coolest card she can find. She gets home, and she takes her pen, and she writes in the card, Happy Birthday, Mom, from her kids' names. And then on her birthday, she wakes up, hands the, ki- hands the card to her kids, and the kids just promptly return the card back to her. Man, take that illustration and then contrast it with this. Man, mom wakes up on her birthday. You have two kids standing by her bed with a handmade card in their hand. It's got a picture of the family on the front and you open it and it says, I love you times 3000. And then they hand the card to the mom and she experiences this willing love from her students. Which one of those scenarios shows willing love? Clearly scenario two. You see if God forced us to obey him in every act aspect of our life and we mindlessly did whatever he asked us to do man love would not be a part of the equation But since we have been restored by the joy that God gives us man we desire to do what he tells us My pastor often will say it this way all other religions say do x and you will be accepted But God says you are accepted Therefore, you do X. You see, uh, joy in God's salvation naturally translates into our willingness to obey him. And David understood that obedience could only follow restored joy and confession of his sin in God. So the third and final truth that I have for you guys today, and maybe you're sitting in this room and you haven't really been paying attention or you got other things on your minds and, and you, just, you, you just haven't really focused in. Man, this point, this is the point that makes everything else matter. And if this wasn't true, then nothing else that we talk about today would have any significance. The result of restored joy and willing obedience translates to salvation for the lost. Read verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. See, I didn't understand verse 12 fully until I put it with verse 13. You see, joy is not ultimately for me. God's joy is fantastic and it's awesome that I get to experience it and I thank him and praise him for it every day. But man, if it stops with me, then it's not joy in the Lord. You see, I have the awesome privilege of serving as the student associate at uh, the Summit Church at one of their campuses. And it has been been amazing and it's been challenging. It's been stretching in so, so many ways. And I didn't fully understand the difficult task of walking willingly and joyfully alongside students until I was actually doing it. And man, it just seems like my, my job, I'm just not given enough time to do completely what God's asking me to do. And I have the, another blessing, and I'm saying this word blessing intentionally, of being in a support-based role. Which means that I need to do my best to support raise my salary and my job at the summit. And I say that word blessing intentionally because support raising is a mountain that I never thought I would have to climb. It can be frustrating and daunting and oftentimes doesn't just seem impossible, it is impossible. But man, thank goodness I can't support raise on my own. You see, support raising has put me in a position that I've never been in before. Man, it's not something I can do. It's not, I can't muster up enough effort and I can't say enough crafty words and I can't do enough cool things to make people want to support the ministry that God's put me in man, I am in a a position of complete dependence on God's sovereignty. Man, and what other position would I want to be in? Like I could maybe try and do decently, but man, when I'm resting in God, he provides abundantly. And it's been so interesting because if I was able to support raise myself and pull myself up by my bootstrap and do it, then all the ministry that would result from that is a result of my own effort and would be fruitless. But since I'm in a position where I have to depend on God for everything, since I'm in a position where I can't do what I need to do alone, then all of the ministry that results from God providing and the fundraising is a result of God and God alone. And I can't look at it and say, look at what I did because it is so clearly evident to me that it's nothing that I could have done. And man, when I see, when I see God give these joy, this joy to these kids who receive Christ for the first time, man, I know that because I am resting in God's joy and willingly obeying Him, that He is saving students from an eternal, from an eternal separation from Him. And man, that's what matters. The result of restored joy and willing obedience is salvation of the lost. You see, God restoring David's joy was not ultimately so that David would be satisfied, although that happened. But ultimately, David's joy being restored to him was for the purpose of teaching transgressors their ways and them returning to Christ. And I think that's true for us. Like if, we, if our joy is stopping at ourselves, and we are are not letting that radiate to others, then I think it's time for us to ask the question, have we truly experienced God's joy? Because that's something that naturally follows. It's not something that we have to put a ton of effort into it. It's just something that follows after becoming a believer. I'll say it one more time. The result of restored joy and willing obedience is salvation for The lost. I just recently had the amazing opportunity to leave the country with about 10 of my students and go to Guatemala. And it was one of the most fantastic experiences and fantastic times of seeing the Lord do his thing and save that I think I have ever been a part of. And I wish I could spend the next three hours or two weeks telling you about what God did on this trip because what he did was truly astounding. I was in a small little village called Los Chilitos. and it's a small poor village and the average income per family is around $3 a day. They have hardly enough money to put walls on their houses. And so most of the time it's scrap metal and pieces of wood that they can find around their area. And cutting down trees is illegal where they're at. So they can't just cut down a tree and use it to build their house. They are in complete poverty. And for whatever reason, God brought our team there to put on a VBS for their students. And man, we got to do crafts and sing songs. And man, we got to play games. It was the best time ever. Seeing these kids who have never heard the gospel before, experience what it's like to even just be around a glimpse of the gospel. And each day we would have just a a short moment of teaching because they would not pay attention to us for very long. And we would sit them down and we had leaders get up and just share a little bit from the Bible tell a little bit of their story. And for the first three days we had leaders share. But on day four, we had an opening. And I asked one of my students, I asked, I asked the group of students, hey, does anyone feel called to teach day four? Woman at the well, I'll help you prepare. God will do awesome things. Is anyone willing to do that? And after about five minutes of waiting in a room full of students who were scared to raise their hand, one hand in the back of the room raised. And it was very timid. Like it was a very, it was like, is anyone else gonna raise their hand before me? No, okay, mine's already up. It was that kind of hand raise. And man, it was so encouraging to see the way that Liz prepared for this moment. She had notes, She was ready. She had gone over it with her dad, who's a pastor. She had showed it to other pastors and other people who could help critique it and and make it just perfect. And man, this girl was nervous. She had never taught in a setting like this before. She never even prayed publicly in a Bible study or in a small group. She had never led a Bible study or a small group. She was really shy and scared. But man, her joy in the Lord and her willingness to obey would surpass those momentary insecurities. And so day four came around and she she got up and she began to teach on the woman at the well, how God and how Jesus had met this woman at the well, how Jesus had waited for this woman at the well, how Jesus knew this woman at the well. And then she asked the question, does anyone here today want to be known the way Jesus knew the woman at the well. And one seven-year-old girl's hand shot up and Liz broke. How could God use someone who's never taught before, who's never even prayed in a public setting before, who has has ever led a Bible study or even knows how to teach the Bible? How could God use that and save someone? She had joy in the Lord and she was willing to obey Him. And man, that little villager, that girl, she got up, she prayed the sinner's prayer in Spanish and a big grin went across her face. And man, she responded the exact same way the woman at the well responded in in Matthew. She bolted into her village, telling everyone that Jesus knew her and that they can know Jesus as well. Man, that is the result of willing obedience and joy in the Lord God saves. And so in our moment of invitation, when we invite people to come to the altar, man, man, lean into that. Because when David's joy was restored, when he was willing to obey, man, he was a powerful king. In fact, he was a man after God's own heart. And that should be something that men and women alike should pursue. You see, it wasn't the things that David did that made him a man after God's own heart. It was his posture and willingness to repent and confess his sin before the Lord. And so in our time of invitation, maybe you're in this room and you're struggling with some unrepentant sin in your heart. I mean, you know it, like you can kind of feel it in your stomach. You know, it's kind of like going down a 40 foot drop on a roller coaster or something, like you can feel it. Don't remain seated. Come to the altar. Ask Jesus to restore the joy of his salvation to your heart. Experience that again, be invited into it. I mean, maybe you're, you're in here and you're struggling to obey the Lord. You're struggling to take that next step of, of obedience, whether it's something as crazy as moving across the globe to a restricted country where you might have the opportunity to share the gospel with one person and then you die. Or something as simple as going across your street and sharing the gospel with the neighbor you've never talked to man, maybe you're struggling to obey the Lord. During our time of invitation, don't remain seated. Come to the altar. Ask God to uphold you with a willing spirit. Ask God to make you willing to obey him. And maybe you've been sitting in this room and you've never experienced this joy that I've been talking about for the past probably two hours. (laughs) Maybe you don't know what that is. Maybe you've never been invited into it. Man, don't stay seated during our time of invitation. Come to the altar, ask for forgiveness the way David in Psalm 51 asked for forgiveness. Ask for a clean heart, ask to be cleansed with hyssop. Ask that God would restore the joy of his salvation to you, not so that you can experience joy, but so that joy can radiate from you to others. Romans 14, 17 says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we are resting in the joy of the Lord and willing to obey him in any and in all circumstances, and circumstances as crazy as Felicitas, who gave up her life, refused to recant her faith and died for the gospel. Or maybe willingness to Go across your street and share the gospel with your neighbor. When when you put yourself in that position, man, the Lord saves.